Uh, we're down in verse uh, 35. It will be a famous story for many of us. But verse 35 through to verse uh, 41, let me read. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Just pick up your service sheets for me and look at the song we'll be singing after the sermon. So Barbara reading sermon and then the song. Uh, let me just read for us that first verse starts on peace like a river. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Many of you will know the story of the man who wrote those words, Horatio Spateford, and how actually he went through some of the most severe suffering that we could think of. Uh, all in the space of two years, his son died of scarlet fever, his business in Chicago was burned to the ground, and his four daughters were drowned in a shipwreck. And the story goes, his wife, who was with the daughters and was rescued, uh, sent him a telegram that had just two words on it. And they said, survived, alone. And as uh, Horatio Spateford himself sailed past the place where his daughters drowned, he wrote those remarkable words we just read. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And we all, we all deep down want that. We want to have a wellness of soul, even when everything in our lives, everything that we love, is stripped away. Uh, peace despite having uh, nothing. Uh, but we also have a quiet fear inside our souls that if the time came when everything was lost, then we wouldn't have that peace. We wouldn't have, if you like, that wellness of soul. We want it, but we fear we wouldn't have it. And I hope this morning that uh, the passage we just read, the calming of the storm, will to some extent calm those fears. And, and it may be that for you this morning, you feel like much has been stripped from your life. And I hope and pray that through our passage, God will bring to you a wellness of soul. Just to uh, orientate us in where we are in Mark, uh, we're in the early stages of Jesus' ministry. Uh, and our temptation would be to completely rip this passage out of context of the narrative. Uh, but to do that would be to mishandle God's words. And so I need to point us to a couple of uh, significant events that happen uh, in the run-up uh, to the calming of the storm uh, to help us understand what's going on here. So first, uh, look back on me just across the page uh, to chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, and note that Jesus has called uh, the 12 disciples uh, to himself. Uh, they are those whom uh, he desired, it says. And he's called them, he's selected them out. They are an inner circle 
uh, separated out from the, the general masses, and he's given them a special role. He's appointed them as apostles, verse uh, 14. Uh, so uh, disciples have been selected out uh, and given a, a special duty, a special task in Jesus' ministry. A uh, second thing we need to uh, note uh, is uh, in chapter 4, to that inner circle, Jesus has just been giving some very significant teaching. Now, teaching starts by calling them, uh, along with others, to listen, to accept what Jesus is saying. We have a repeated refrain, verse 9 of chapter 4 and verse uh, 23. Anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus calling people, especially his disciples, to listen properly, which means listening and then doing. Hence, in the parable of the sower, which many of us will know, the good soil bears fruit, verse 20, uh, is the one who hears and accepts, uh, sees them as true, if you like, has faith that they're true, Jesus' words. And then, just before the calming of the storm, verses 26 to 34, Jesus finishes his teaching with the first real bit of information that the disciples need to know. Uh, it's all about the kingdom of God, and again, it will be familiar to lots of us. Uh, in summary, what we need to know from that teaching is that the kingdom of God will be uh, unstoppable, like wheat growing in a harvest field, and it will be universally significant, uh, like a seed that grows into a tree and dominates all the other plants in the garden. The kingdom of God is unstoppable, and the kingdom of God is universally significant. And note lastly as well in verse 34, the disciples really are getting special treatment. They are a selected inner circle, and they're having things privately explained to them by the Lord Jesus. So as we get to our passage, it seems like the 12 disciples have been having well, a pretty good time. And they've been treated especially by Jesus, the man who presumably everyone's talking about. He's gathered huge crowds to himself. They've been selected by him. They've been given understanding and uh, knowledge of secrets that no one else has. So life for the disciples must have been pretty good. Just imagine for a moment that you rocked up to one of Martin Luther King's rallying speeches, and after he finishes rallying the people to civil justice, uh, he comes down the steps and heads straight for you. He picks you out from among the tens of thousands of people there, and he calls you to follow him out the crowd, and you do, and everyone sees that. And he invites you to his home, and he invites you to his meetings where they're planning the next steps in the civil rights campaign, and he confides in new things which he hasn't confided in anyone else. And around you, people have started calling you the king's companion, and it feels pretty good. Well, that might just glimpse for us how the disciples were feeling at this stage. But let's turn and see what happens next, because after finishing his teaching, Jesus says, verse 35, let's go across to the other side. We're not told why, just that he wants to. Uh, and so the disciples, being very obedient, they set off with him. They take Jesus, verse 36, just as he was. They take Christ. They take Christ alone with them. And off they go on their sailing trip. And then quite dramatically, and this rosy world that the disciples have been living in collapses, verse 37. Everything goes wrong. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves are breaking into the boat so the boat was already filling. Now, children, what do you think the disciples were worried about? What do you think worry is going to happen? Yeah, 
exactly they're worried exactly right they're worried that the boat beneath them is going to sink the winds are like hurricanes around them the waves are like tsunamis and they're worried the boat is going to sink and take them to a watery grave and in, in the face of that raging chaos around them well they must have felt pretty helpless and they must have felt pretty hopeless uh, it seems to them that they are entirely at the mercy of the storm. For the disciples, chaos seems to reign. And that's the situation we find disciples in, with chaos uh, seeming to reign. And I, I wonder, like, do you know how that feels? Everything seems so good. Being a Christian was really pretty great. You're enjoying your walk with God. You were reveling in scripture. You were, you were actually loving being obedient to his words. You were enjoying church. You were one of Jesus' followers, one of the sheep in his flock. And it felt like it. So it felt good. And then a chaos descended into your life. That conversation you had or that event you went through, I don't know what it is, or maybe some bad news that you received. And, and for some of us, we're like the disciples. Chaos is reigning now it's current and every morning you wake up feels darker than the morning before and for some of us it might be a time we've been through and the scars are still fresh in our memory uh, can i say for some of us we won't know what it feels like for chaos to really reign if you're on that last group this morning can i say to you don't be naive chaos will come to you even in our sheltered Western homes, it may be financial problems, it may be mental health problems, it may be illness, chaos comes in many different forms. And even if by God's grace you are spared those, death will come and it will come for you and it will come for your loved ones. Chaos will come, chaos will seem like it rains. And what's the thing that makes chaos raining so hard? Well, it's the little voice inside our heads that says, where is God? Does he not care? Looking back at our passage, this is clearly how the disciples felt. This is their experience, because in the middle of the chaos reigning, what is Jesus doing? Verse 38, he's sleeping on the cushion. And, and, and our hearts sympathise with the disciples. How can Jesus be asleep? The waves are literally crashing onto him. And they look at him, and they look at the wind around them, and they cry out, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? How can you be asleep? What are you doing? Don't you care about us, about what we're facing? Does Jesus not care that they're per perishing? Does Jesus not care when we are, when we feel like we're perishing, drowning in the chaos of our lives, when our heads are in turmoil and our hearts are in darkness? I think this morning uh, we find uh, three reasons, three things about Christ to which we can look and find comfort and peace to find uh, that wellness of soul when chaos seems to reign. And the first thing is Christ's control. Christ's control. And when awakened by the disciples accusing voices, Jesus stands up and cries three commanding words, peace, be still. Three words, two commands, and that's all it takes. 
Now the storm that's risen up against them is rebuked. The hurricane winds become still and die down to less than a whisper. The tsunami waves are flattened and the surface of the Sea of Galilee becomes calm, almost mirror-like. You see, the merciless chaos, whatever it might be for you, the merciless chaos is completely at the mercy of Christ. He is utterly in control over it. And so verse 41, it's not actually over the page that surprising that the disciples are terrified. The eyes have witnessed something that the brain simply can't comprehend. And so they whisper to each other, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Now children, who made the wind and the sea? Yeah, abs. Go on. Jesus did. Well, Jesus did. God did. Um, And God is the one who has authority to control it. And you're right, Jesus did. And that's what he's showing here. Um, Psalm 107 verse uh, 29 tells us that God is the one who makes the storms be still. God is the one who makes the sea hushed. God is the one who responds to those in the storm, cry out for help and saves them in power. And as you're right, because their brains are struggling, because Jesus, a man, has just done something that only God can do. Jesus, you see, Jesus does not appeal to God above him to calm the storm. He calms the storm from within himself. His words are calming the storm. The merciless chaos is completely at the mercy of Christ. Here is a man of God's absolute authoritative control over creation. And our world, our world loves to dress Christ down. It loves to lessen him to just a friend with flowing hair and a sympathetic smile to every sob and every tear. And he is a friend, but we like to reduce him to that. And maybe you're not a follower of Christ this morning, and maybe that's how you imagine Christ. And he just doesn't seem that worth bothering about. He seems like a peace-loving, hippie-like character. Well, remember this. Remember this story. He has the power of God running through his body because he is God. When life descends into chaos, we need to know that Christ is in control. Not simply that he can control the chaos, if he, if he so wished to, but that he is in control of the chaos. And in the account of the storm being stilled, it did not simply happen by chance. It's not as if the storm happened and uh, Christ woke up and thought, hey, this is a really good opportunity for me to show my power and my control to the disciples. No, he is in complete control of the storm. And it's arising, it's not outside that control. He allowed the storm to arise. And he allowed it to rise, presumably, to show his disciples his power and to um, show us 2,000 years later that same power which he has and still has as he reigns in heaven. And do you hear uh, any comfort in that? And we might not understand why evil chaos enters our lives, but we do know that Christ is powerfully in control. He's not asleep on the job, and he's not oblivious to what's going on. And I wonder, is that what we need to hear this morning, that the chaos does not, in fact, reign, but Christ does? So Christ's control is our first place of comfort, but our second place of comfort is in Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom. I wonder, uh, uh, over the page 840, uh, I wonder what you make of Jesus' words to disciples as, as he turns from calming the storm. Because they're not words of comfort, are they? It's not what you expect, but they're words of rebuke. 
He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And the implication is that the disciples, amidst the raging storm and the chaos around them, should not have been afraid. And that the reason why they were afraid is that they had no faith in Christ. And the little voice inside our heads goes, gosh, Jesus, isn't that just a little bit unfair? I mean, Jesus, the boat was literally sinking beneath their feet. Aren't you being just a tad harsh? Why does Jesus rebuke them? Well, just before uh, we saw him teaching the disciples about the kingdom, verses 26 to 34, the unstoppable growing kingdom of God that will be universally significant. And this is not actually the first time we've heard of the kingdom of God in Mark's gospel. Chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Jesus' very first words, very first words as he embarks on his ministry were, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus appears out of the desert and announces that the kingdom of God is near. And the connection, therefore, is obvious. Jesus and his kingdom are inseparable. As he appears out of the desert and starts his ministry, the seed of the kingdom of God is planted. The kingdom of God is, after all, Jesus' kingdom. And the disciples should have known that. They just had teaching on it. Christ and his kingdom are united. You have Christ, you have the kingdom. You lose Christ, you lose the kingdom. And they had Christ. Jesus was with them in the storm, just as he was, Christ alone. And Jesus and the kingdom are inseparable. And the kingdom will grow. Jesus just told them that. And so, so he's not about to die in some freak sailing accident, nor are the disciples who have been given special roles, special duties in Christ's kingdom. Everything had been going so well. The world was rosy for the disciples. But the moment, the first moment, they had reason to doubt Christ and to doubt his words, they do. And their response to the chaos reveals their problem. The eyes were on the chaos and they were not on Christ's kingdom. If they had lifted their eyes from the chaos to Christ's kingdom, if they had trusted Christ and his words, then they wouldn't have been afraid, at least not in a worldly way even as the ship sunk beneath them where they would not have been afraid. So where are your eyes? Are they on the kingdom? Christ does not promise us that the chaos in our lives will be magicked away, that it will just uh, be solved, but he does promise us that his kingdom will prevail, and it will prevail over whatever chaos you're in, or will be in, eventually. And so do you trust him? And if you are here this morning trusting in Christ, then you are part of his kingdom. You are one of his people, a sheep in his fold, and he will shepherd you home. When the harvest comes, you will be gathered in. And so we can be sure, utterly sure, that Christ, who is in control, will allow nothing in this world to drag you out of his kingdom. Do you trust him? And if you do fear disaster, or if you're right now in the middle of it, then make your concern the kingdom of God. Because the truth is, if you are more concerned with health or wealth or prosperity or even your friends or your family, an environment, whatever you want to choose, then you should be afraid. Life will be terrifying because it can, and it might well, take those things away from you. 
But if your eyes and your concern are for the kingdom of God, then nothing can terrify you and no evil will drive you to despair. Are you trusting Christ and Christ's kingdom? And there is a third place to look, a place where both Christ's control and Christ's kingdom point, and that is to Christ's compassion. Christ's compassion, and we know ultimately that's shown to us on the cross. Teacher, disciples ask, do you not care that we are perishing? Does Christ care? Yes. The answer is yes, far, far more than they realise. And to, to appreciate, that, appreciate that fully, you actually need to turn to the book of Jonah. So turn to the book of Jonah in your Bibles, keep a thumb and mark, turn to the book of Jonah, page 774. Page 774, we're in Jonah chapter 1. And what we need to see um, is that between Jonah chapter 1 and our account this morning, there are really very remarkable parallels. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Jonah, uh, it's the one where uh, the whale eats the man. And we haven't got there yet. And we're right at the start of the story, at the point where Jonah J- has been commanded by God to do something he doesn't want to do. And so he's running away from God. And he chooses a ship to run away in. We're going to look at verses 4 through to verses 16. I'm not going to read it, it'll take uh, too long. Instead, I'm just going to pick out the, the five remarkable parallels between what happens to Jonah and what happens in our account in Mark. So first, parallel, verse 4. There is a mighty storm that threatens to destroy Jonah's ship. I think that parallel is obvious. End of verse 5, second parallel. Like Jesus, Jonah is asleep in his ship, seemingly oblivious to what's going on. Number three, verse six. The captain accuses Jonah of not really caring about the storm, just as the disciples were accusing Jesus of not really caring. And then jumping forward a bit, verse 15, number four. When they throw Jonah overboard, what happens? Well, the sea stopped raging and was calm. Just when Jesus spoke and the sea was calmed. And then lastly, uh, verse 16. The sailors' response is to fear God and worship him. And if we remember, the disciples' response was also to fear, to fear Jesus, who had just just demonstrated the power of God in him. So two similar accounts. Uh, But why are they similar? What's the point? Because obviously, in many ways, Jesus is utterly unlike Jonah, who's running away and defying God. But there is one way he is like him. What saved the sailors in Jonah's account from the storm and from death? Well, Verse 15, we're told by, it's by throwing Jonah overboard. Why did they choose to do that? Well, because Jonah told them to. Verse 12 in Jonah chapter 1, he says, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. His message is really clear. It's for you to live, I must die. For you to live. I must die. And Christ says the same to us. He looks at us and says, for you to live, I must die. For you to live, I must be the one who's thrown overboard and perishes in the storm. For you to live and be saved spiritually and be saved one day physically in the great resurrection, Christ says, I must die. And he did. 
And we know that he went to the cross at Calvary. Teacher, the disciples asked, do you not care that we are perishing? Yes, he cares far more than they understood, far more than they could ever comprehend or understand. And his compassion is deeper and stronger than anything we might ever find in this world. And we know that because he drowned in our place. Jesus, do you not care that a member of my family is dying? Jesus, do you not care that I'm suffering in my mind? Or Jesus, do you not care that I have lost my job, I've lost my closest friends, I've lost my home? And when those questions haunt you, look at the cross. Your pain is not because Jesus is asleep or has lost control or simply doesn't care. Look at the cross. Hear those words, for you to live, I must die. And then know that he did. So when chaos seems to reign, look at Christ's control as kingdom and lastly as compassion shown to us at the cross. If you are trusting in him this morning, know this. He has, he has already won you into his kingdom. He has died so that he might have you. So he's not going to allow lesser things to drag you away from him. You trust him. Horatio Spafford did. That's how he found that wellness of soul within him. Even at the most painful time of his life, because he knew that he belonged to Christ. He trusted Christ and his promises about the kingdom. He was alive in Christ, and he knew that Christ would see him safely home. I'm going to pray, but in a moment we're going to uh, stand and sing that song he wrote. We're going to raise our voice with his. But first, let us pray. Our Father, you are so gracious to us in revealing to us your character and your word, and revealing to us the character of Christ. Father, he is at a deep well of compassion, and please when times are hard, when chaos reigns, would we be people who run to that well again and again and again? For you and for your glory. Amen.